My guest today is Professor Emil Martinek, who is Professor of Physics at the Enrico Fermi Institute and the College of the University of Chicago. His research focuses on string theory and particle physics. Welcome, Emil. Hi. Yeah, so this is, uh, I've never done this before, Emil. So this is our fourth conversation in a sequence. Indeed. And uh, it has been extremely useful for me and I hope some of our audience. So we started off talking about the, the four fundamental forces, yeah. gravity, electromagnetism, and the strong and weak forces inside an atom. Um, and, and so there has always been sort of this desire in physics, in cosmology and astrophysics, to unite them together into a singular framework. But we have never been able to do that. Um, in the second session, we talked about uh, Einstein's theory of gravity and, uh, um, and quantum mechanics. And these are two theories who are exceptionally successful at the scales that they really focus on. Uh, but we haven't been able to bring them together uh, for a long time. Uh, and so in the third session, we talked about sort of the objectives of what, what you're famous for, what you have done most of your career, and that is string theory. And we talked a bit about sort of the history of string theory. Um, so, so, so we talked about sort of Einstein's theory and, um, and electromagnetism and, and quantum mechanics and how the concepts there sort of give some indications that something was missing, perhaps we can extend it, we can extrapolate, we can go in a different direction. And we talked about sort of the history of string theory, S-matrix theory, 1943, Regier theory and bootstrap models, 1959, uh, 1960s, the dual resonance model, 6874, the bosonic string theory and super string theory, 7484. So these are different versions of string theory. Mm -hmm. Um, but by the time you got to Princeton as a young, um, charming, I would imagine. Uh, <laughs> Freshly minted PhD, yes. <laughs> uh, kid, let me call you. Uh, at, at Princeton, things were sort of perking back up again in, in string theory, right? So it's sort of the, uh, the, the, the super string revolution. So... We want to start there, and if you want to sort of connect that to history a little bit, mm -hmm. and then you know talk about what what was happening at Princeton between '84 and '94, that's where we will start today's conversation. Okay, that sounds good. So, um, so what had happened in the period from '74 to '84 was that um, people were trying to the people who were still working on string theory, as I said. A lot of people, once they realized that, that quantum chromodynamics um, was the right theory of the strong interactions, they went in that direction and left string theory behind. And there was just a small cadre of people who continued to pursue string theory and try to understand it better. And as I said last time, uh, Shirk, Schwartz, and Yonea, um, I think, made one of the fundamental observations that string theory really wants to be a theory of gravity rather than a theory just of the strong interactions. And so one of the things that uh, then became an issue was, okay, if string theory is fundamentally a theory of gravity, how does the standard model fit into it? And 
of the string theories that were known at that time, um, two of them, so-called type 2A and type 2B, the, the terminology is terrible, but you, anyway, you there were- are, Yeah, I have to say you guys are really good at naming things. Um, sometimes good and sometimes terrible. <laughs> so this is, so, so one of them were terribly uninspiring names of type 2A, type 2B, type 1, okay? So, so the type 2 string theories had gravity but no, nothing that looked like um, the standard model. Uh, type one theory had gravity plus uh, gauge theories of the sort that you find in the standard model, but were missing um, chirality, what's called chirality of matter. Um, so if you look at, say, the electron, or all the particles in the standard model, uh, they have um, two kinds, two, two if I look at a given particle like the electron, uh, then um, if it's moving in some direction, it has some momentum. My thumb point in the direction of the momentum. Okay, the electron also has spin. And so it can be either spinning left-handed. So if my fingers point in the direction that the particle is spinning and my thumb points in the direction of the momentum, then what I'm describing right now is a left-handed spin. Um, if well, depending on how your cameras are, <laughs> if your cameras are reflecting things or not. Anyways, then there's the other orientation where, um, which according to the way I am in my room right now, is my right hand uh, with the thumb pointing in the direction of the moment. The direction of the spin is in the opposite direction. So there are two kinds of particles, left-handed and right-handed. It's a we have in chemistry, right? I mean, we have chirality in chemistry. In yes, it, it's, it's, well, it's, it's in the sense that um, it's that, that, yes, there can be different sort of configurations of the degrees of freedom. Um, and so there are what are called stereoisomers in chemistry, where uh, there's sort of a, a chemical molecule, but then it also has a, a mirror image, which is the same arrangement of atoms, but as if you arranged, as if you built them using a mirror. And so it's a similar idea that, that, that nature selects um, doesn't doesn't appear in a uh, reflection symmetric way. So, for instance, in chemistry, uh, the molecules that that are used as the building blocks of life have a particular handedness, and the other handedness doesn't appear in nature, or at least in in you know the cells that make up our bodies. So, a similar sort of thing here, except that both chiralities appear, both handednesses of electrons appear. What's different is that the weak interactions that we talked about in previous sessions only couples to the left-handed electron and not the right-handed electron. Mm. Uh, so just a fact of nature. Uh, and so the weak interactions strongly break reflection symmetry in space. Um, and uh, the problem was that this type one string theory had um, uh, didn't have a room for a weak interaction that only coupled to left-handed electrons. And so this was a problem. Um, and uh, what was observed in 1984 by Green and Schwartz was um, that there's a sensitive issue um, when you have uh, this kind of handedness uh, of interactions, um, that the theory can be inconsistent. Uh, quantum mechanically. Uh, and so a question immediately arose if the various string theories are not uh, reflection symmetric, do they have an inconsistency? And what Green and Schwartz showed 
was that uh, actually the consistency requirements were satisfied by all the known string theories. Mm. But that uh, in addition to the known string theories, there was a yet another solution of their consistency conditions. Um, what were called at that time the Green-Schwartz anomaly cancellation conditions. <laughs> anomaly is, a, is, is, a, is this potential inconsistency. And so um, canceling the anomaly means uh, satisfying the conditions that there is no inconsistency. And so it was seen that there was yet one more uh, potential solution, um, which in addition had the feature that it would have matter which had chiral interactions uh, with the, the gauge fields, the carriers of the forces. And so, okay, this is indicated that another, the, the fact that there was another solution indicated there might be another kind of string theory that, that wasn't yet um, known. So at and, that point, sorry, so at that point you have only three, one, two A and two B. Yeah. Okay. That, and there was the bosonic string, but the bosonic string had its own inconsistency. It was unstable, it's just not a viable theory. Um, and, but so of the ones that could potentially be consistent and stable and you know describe the real world, there were this type two, type one, and um, and uh, this potentially new theory that wasn't wasn't yet described. And um, and so uh, uh, people got in Princeton got very excited. Um, and uh, and I had come, I did my PhD work in part on string theory. Um, and uh, so that was uh, at Chicago. Uh, this was at uh, so my PhD is from Cornell, but my thesis advisor moved from Cornell to Stanford. So I sort of spent half my graduate work at Cornell and half at Stanford. Um, uh, but Stanford was where I met Lenny Susskind, who was one of these progenitors of string theory that that uh, we talked about uh, last time. Um, and uh, and so I, I sort of came to Cornell to to Princeton, excuse me, knowing a little bit about string theory, um, where I also encountered David Gross, uh, who's the Nobel laureate um, uh, in physics for his uh, foundational work on the strong interactions. But before he um, um, sort of built the theory of the strong, helped build the theory of the strong interactions, uh, he was also uh, in, early in his career a proponent of string theory. Uh, so, so when Green and Schwartz came out with his result, David Gross got interested, Edward Witten got interested, um, basically everybody among the senior faculty in Princeton became <laughs> quite excited. And the, sort of the hunt was on for this new string theory. So Edward, could actually Edward, the standard model. Ed, Ed Witten, you said? Yes. So, so, so we, we will come back to him. At, at we will come back to him. He's a, a foundational figure in, in running through all of this, but, but he became very excited. And, um, and so I initially started working with um, one of the junior faculty at Princeton, a uh, fellow by the name of Jeff Harvey, who's now my colleague at Chicago. And, uh, uh, and so we started, so, so, so what's, what, what, in, what was new about this unknown string theory? It was that um, the uh, symmetry underlying the, um, the gauge interactions, the standard model-like uh, forces uh, was a group uh, a symmetry called E8, and, and uh, there were very of, of the known ways of constructing string theories. There was sort of a no-go theorem 
that had been shown that groups like E8 were not compatible with symmetry groups like E8 were not compatible with string theory. So, um, uh, so, so how could this be? There, there, the, the you know, there's this obvious thing waiting to be found, some string theory that had E8 as a symmetry, but the known ways of constructing string theories didn't have E8 symmetry. And uh, so, well, we worked on it for a couple of months. Um, and um, I had, at, because I had been interested in string theory as a graduate student, had been attending various conferences and, and things related to string theory um, and sort of just accumulating, you know, a bag of tricks, if you like. <laughs> uh, and one of the things in my bag of tricks uh, was that there was a way of using string theory techniques of um, describing the group E8, the symmetry E8. And so, um, so when I realized that something I had learned in graduate school was relevant for what we were trying to do uh, in, in Princeton, uh, we started sort of refining the idea, refining the idea. Um, and uh, eventually the collaboration was uh, my colleague, Jeff Harvey, uh, a person, Ryan Rome, who was a graduate student, at the, graduate student of Witten's at the time, and David Gross. And together, the four of us hammered out a new kind of string theory called the heterotic string. Uh, so this which, is the quad. This is a famous quad. This is the, this, the, the Princeton string quartet, we were called. Yes. And, uh, and so, so we, um, we uh, came up with this uh, new kind of string theory, uh, which combines elements of the bosonic string, which is unstable, with the superstring. And so it sort of runs the risk of being inconsistent for, for reasons of instability, but sort of the combination of the fact that it has the superstring, which is stable, and the bosonic string, which is not stable, when when you sort of combine the two, the superstring wins and it remains stable, but the sort of bosonic string part of it is capable of describing this symmetry E8. Mm. And so by sort of sort of gluing the two together in a particular way, we were able to find something that had all of the right properties to describe the standard model. So, so, so why do you call that? Um, Called the heterotic string. Heterotic and string. You yeah. say, okay, you know, once again, string theorists with their terminology. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. so heterotic. Uh, this is something that Jeff Harvey came up with. So heterosis is a uh, um, uh, the uh, idea in um, in plant biology that you can take two different uh, species of plant, plant, and you can graft one onto the other, and get a, a a new species which has better properties than either one <laughs> that you started with. And so this seemed like a perfect uh, analogy to what we were doing. We were taking two different kinds of string theory, each of which had the the didn't have the right properties to to describe nature, and we sort of married them together, uh, grafted one onto the other. To, to find a, a new, more vigorous uh, kind of string theory, <laughs> which had all the right properties to describe. Uh, the in real some world. sense, you're also combining, it sounds to me, uh, I mean, it's always um, dangerous to, uh, to talk about things you don't particularly know about. But it seems to me that you're sort of combining practice with theory too, in some sense, right? Um, well, this is all in a very rarefied theoretical realm. So. Okay. So we're just sort of like playing games, uh, playing mathematical games, piecing together things that we already know how to build as theoretical models and finding a new theoretical model 
that was based on two already known theoretical models. Yeah. Uh, so it's in in that in that spirit. So this is sort of the fourth string theory now. Yeah. It it had it had sort of two variants, um, which turn it turns out there there are various um, uh, um, other additional symmetries that string theory has called duality symmetries, and so it, the, we initially sort of said, well, there are two different of these heterotic strings, uh, one of which was similar to the type one, had the same symmetry group as the type one theory. And the new one had the E8 symmetry. So people immediately more latched onto the E8 theory because it seemed like initially that was more uh, directly related to uh, incorporating the standard model into string theory. But as we'll discuss later, the duality symmetries that were were eventually uh, um, a, a feature of string theory turn out to relate all of the different string theories in 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 very intricate ways. So that, in fact, there isn't, there aren't sort of four or five different kinds of string theory. There's one kind of string theory that just has different regimes or phases. We were talking about the standard model um, having three different forces that turn out to be in three different phases of gauge theory, namely the Coulomb phase, the confining phase, and the Higgs phase. Well, it's a little bit like that. There's sort of different phases of string theory or regimes of behavior. And all the different known string theories seem to fit into this one underlying structure and having different um, sort of avatars or different phases, uh, which uh, the known string theories uh, uh, are, are uh, examples of. So is this, uh, I can quite remember, I know there was a conference at USC. This is where Ed Witten came up with yeah, yeah. So that's sort of jumping ahead about ten years to 1995. So, so we should probably stick to uh, what's happening in 1984 and sort of work our way up to that. Okay. I just want to sort of give you a little, yeah, yeah. Um, sort of uh, wet your appetite to, for what comes later. <laughs> um, okay. So, so, so the heterotic string was discovered. It it, it immediately set off an explosion of interest. Um, and uh, so we have to come back to one of the um, uh, additional features of string theory, which is extra dimensions. So we talked a little bit in previous uh, uh, session about Kaluza-Klein theory and the idea that extra dimensions could be a feature of gravity. So uh, we also talked last time about the consistency conditions of a string propagating throughout a curved space uh, being Einstein's equations. Well. Um, let me actually revise that um, that that discussion a little bit. Um, so, a standard uh, method of analysis in 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 physics and in, in many disciplines is to if you have a, a something you want to calculate, and it depends on some parameter, um, some some number, okay, like the strength of electromagnetic interactions, say. Um, so, so the strength of electrum, the proper notion of the strength of electromagnetic interactions um, is something called, well, I don't care what it's called. It's some number. It's one over 137 in nature. Okay, so that's a small number. And so, of course, everything in electromagnetism depends on the strength of electromagnetic interactions. So since it's a small number, you might say, well, let me construct a series of successive approximations to uh, some process that occurs in nature, uh, where the first approximation is uh, um, 
you know, the leading order in the strength of electromagnetic interactions. And then I construct a sequence of successive refinements of that first approximation in powers of this small number. So, so let's suppose I have something in string theory I want to calculate, and my small dimensionless number is uh, one-tenth. Okay, so then my leading approximation will be 10 accurate to within 10%. Okay, and uh, so then if I calculate the next order of approximation, it will be accurate to within 1%. And then if I calculate the next order and add that in, I'll get a refinement uh, which is accurate to within 0.1% and 0.01%. So it's like, you know, keep going like that. So it turns out that uh, this set of consistency conditions I described for a string propagating in a curved space, the Einstein equations aren't the first term in that successive approximation. It's actually the second term. <laughs> the leading term is the condition that the dimension of space-time is 10. Is what? Sorry? 10. Nine dimensions of space and one dimension of time. So instead of space-time being three plus one dimensions, Space-time and string theory has to be nine plus one dimensions. And if you make that assumption, then the next order in the approximation of string dynamics in curved space are the Einstein equations. Mm. And then there are higher terms than that. There, and, and the small dimensionless number that you're expanding in is the curvature scale, the scale at which the rate, the, 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 di the geometry is curved relative to the string scale. Okay, so if we think of the surface of the Earth, that the surface of the Earth is a sphere, the Earth has a radius which is um, uh, several thousand kilometers, several thousand miles. So that's the the sort of scale of the curvature of the Earth is the radius of the Earth, okay, several thousand miles. Okay, the string length is extremely microscopic, okay, and and so the string length divided by the radius of curvature um, is a tiny tiny number. And so in nature, this is a really good approximation uh, in, under most circumstances. And so the first, first condition is a condition that doesn't involve curvature, it just involves the dimension of space. And says dimension of space has nine spatial dimensions plus time. And then the next series to determine the approximation is, as I was saying, the Einstein equation. So it looks really nice. You get Einstein's equations out of thinking about strings as some fundamental object. Uh, but you have to swallow something that looks ridiculous, namely that there are nine spatial dimensions and not the three that we observe. And so this led to a revival of the Kaluza-Klein idea that we talked about before, yeah. that you can have extra dimensions of space as long as they're sufficiently microscopic and curled up that we haven't seen them yet with our most powerful microscopes. And so, so, so this, this uh, people already knew in the 1970s that string theory had this requirement of wanting to be in 10 dimensions. So already when Shirk and Schwartz and Yunea were recasting string theory as a theory of gravity, it was gravity in nine spatial dimensions. And so they realized, well, nature isn't, that we don't see nine big, you know, macroscopic dimensions in nature. So we have to revive this Kaluza-Klein idea in order to accommodate what string theory wants uh, space-time to be, uh, and so once, but once you do accept that, then you know out comes Einstein equations, and um, uh, and and more. So one of the things that you get is that okay, Einstein's equations are the first correction to these uh, consistency conditions for strings propagating in space-time. There are subsequent levels of approximation that are additional. Uh, uh, 
terms, which are tiny, tiny, tiny corrections, as long as the curvature of space-time is small relative to the string scale. So let me, let me see if I understand this a bit. So mathematically, you need to have nine spatial dimensions and one time dimension for string theory to work. Yes. And if you accept that, then what we know in sort of the physical, classical way, things seem to emerge from that. Yes. As long as you are willing to let go that you will never be able to see <laughs> the, the, the... It's the unlikely, thing, yes, that you'll be uh, able to see it. The spatial dimensions, right? So, um, so it's sort of an, so it's a very elegant way to look at a problem we haven't been able to solve yet um, mathematically. But then the question remains: If this is only alternative, I mean, are there other ways we can think about this? Yeah. Well, um, so people in you know since. Einstein and quantum mechanics were, have been trying to marry Einstein's theory with quantum mechanics. And it, it runs into an, a number of problems. Um, one I was describing, I think, last time, this idea that in, in gravity, the strength of the interaction is the energy. Um, if you want a dimensionless number, it's the energy relative to the Planck, Planck energy. Um, and so as long as you're talking about energies that are less than Planck scale, then the gravitational interactions are relatively weak and you can, you can, um, you can calculate. The problem is that, is that when you start doing these subsequent corrections, then you have processes that involve virtual particles whose energies can be arbitrarily large. And quantum mechanics tells you you have to include the contributions of those virtual interactions um, uh, to, to whatever process you're calculating. And so, so the problem is that at every step of the approximation, the answers are infinity uh, in, in, in gravity, or at least they're, they're of order one, you know, energies, up, energies going up to the Planck scale make of order one corrections to whatever you're calculating. And so, so your, your approximation scheme starts breaking down because your second correction becomes as big as the previous correction. And so you're adding up a whole bunch of numbers which are all, all the same order and trying to make sense of it. And so it's like you liked the answer, the answer you got in the first approximation, but then you don't like the fact that the next approximation makes a correction which is almost as big as the thing you started with. And so it doesn't lead you to something that converges to a nice answer. So, so are we using the extra dimensions as a way to get mathematics to work that is convergence, um, you know, yeah. avoiding avoiding infinities and so on. So the extra dimensions, the role of the extra dimensions isn't necessarily for well, we, um, isn't initially about about that. So so there are very just different kinds of uh, divergences that appear in Einstein's gravity, um, and um, and the extra dimensions aren't necessarily uh, useful for solving all of them. Um, but but the idea that what's more useful for solving the problems of the divergences of, of ordinary quantum, you know, the sort of naive attempts to quantize gravity run into this problem. So you say, okay, what, what in string theory fixes this problem? 
So there, there's several things, several sort of candidates for things in string theory that solve this problem. The initial one is the idea that the if the string length, there's an intrinsic length scale associated with strings, yeah. uh, which is the scale set by their tension. We talked about this last time. The energy it costs to stretch a string a certain distance. Um, okay, so that's one length scale. It's sort of intrinsic to the dynamics of the string. Then there's another intrinsic length scale, which is the one that Planck taught us about, the Planck scale, which has to do with the strength of gravity. And, and the dimensionless ratio in string theory that you use for an approximation scheme is the ratio of the string length is the ratio of the Planck length divided by the string length. Mm -hmm. So the string length is normally so the string length can be much bigger um, than the Planck length. And so say if it's 10 or 100 times bigger than the Planck length, then you have a small dimensionless number. The ratio of those two scales is one tenth or one one hundredth, and you now have a a scheme for approximating things. So you could say, okay, how does string theory solve the problem? Well, because once you start reaching energies which are the string scale, which is below, so so the 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 um, the interactions would become strong if they looked like gravity all the way up to the Planck scale. Okay, but the problem is that as soon as the energy gets up to the string scale, you start exciting the vibrations of the string, mm. and so the nature of the interactions changes from that of particle physics because you have this extended object, and the extended object ameliorates the divergences. It sort of takes over the dynamics and says that gravity is just one of many kinds of different vibrations of the string. Mm. And because of there's sort of this democracy of all different vibrations of the string of which gravity is just one, gravity gets overwhelmed by everything else and the divergences are less severe. Mm. And so that's the way we understand, at least within the context of these successive approximation schemes, that string theory is a finite theory of gravity. That is, it doesn't have these wild, uncontrollable um, uh, uh, corrections to uh, dynamical processes. So, as you say, um, the, the democratization of strings um, vibrations that produces gravitons and other things sort of puts things in the context. <laughs> Uh, or put gravity in its place, so to speak. Yeah. Is that the way to think about it? Yeah, so exactly. So for instance, there are certain kinds of singularities in the geometry, what are called curvature singularities. So I said, if the curvature is weak, everything is nice and well-controlled. But one of the features of Einstein's theory is that it's, it's, um, it's, uh, uh, the curve, the dynamics of the theory can create, um, as time develops, can develop regions of high curvature, just as you know things run around and interact with each other, uh, you can generate singularities in, in the structure, in the curvature of space and time. So the, the singularity at the core of a black hole is such a curvature singularity uh, where Einstein's theory breaks down. And there are various other uh, kinds of curvature singularities that can also occur. Um, and some of the singularities are resolved just by the, this accessing this large space of string vibrations. Um, other singularities, such as the black hole singularity, require more what are called non-perturbative uh, effects uh, that go beyond the successive approximation scheme uh, and treat the dynamics more exactly. And we'll get to that in a, in a little bit. Yeah. But there were at least, at, you know, already in the in the late 1980s, it was understood that string theory was good for 
fixing up the shortcomings of Einstein's theory. Remember I said there were these successive terms and approximation which are which are related to what is the ratio between the length of strings and the radius of curvature of the geometry. So when the radius of curvature becomes of order the string length, then this sequence of approximations starts not working so well. But there are various techniques with uh, for dealing with the dynamics going beyond the approximation scheme and solving the dynamics more exactly. And it was seen that in those exact treatments, the sort of extra structure of string theory fixed the problem of Einstein's. What, by going beyond Einstein's theory, you fixed some of the singularity problems of Einstein's theory. Um, yeah, it's really fascinating, Emil. You know, um, so would you say the beauty of string theory is that it is sort of a modified theory of gravity, mm -hmm. and then standard model comes for the ride? Yeah, so we haven't talked uh, about how, how the standard model comes yeah. out, and it, it comes from this Kaluza-Klein idea. Yeah. So, um, so you there are six more dimensions of space beyond the ones that we observe in the world, and so they have to be tiny. Um, and uh, and so um, so the question becomes, okay, what? So you more than just saying, okay, they're tiny. So you know, for all practical purposes, I won't have to think about them. Well, the way they enter particle physics is that um, in, in the string idea, every particle is a particular kind of state of strings. Under, underlying it, it it's a, the, the particles are actually strings at some microscopic scale. And, um, and so, so when you say, okay, what's the mass of a particular particle? The mass of a particle gets a contribution from what the string is doing in the extra dimensions. And so, so to figure out what the spectrum of particles is in the standard model, you have to solve for the dynamics of strings in this tiny compact space. And the ones that are light are the ones where effectively the dynamics of the strings in this tiny compact space gives you almost zero contribution, or essentially zero contribution to the mass. And so, like so you- Neutrino, for example? So, for instance, the neutrino, but actually all the quarks and the electron and everything, okay? So, so, um, so the, the gauge bosons are protected from getting a, a mass because of symmetry reasons, but the particles of the standard model don't have any obvious way of getting, uh, keeping their masses light. You know, so if, if you were, if you're saying, okay, the dynamics of strings, you know, affects everything, then you would say, okay, well, what's the natural scale for masses of particles? Well, it's the string scale. So obviously, you know, and the string scale is like the compactification. These are all very microscopic scales. So we have to do something, we have to engineer something in the theory that keeps all the particles of the standard model much, much lighter than the scale of the compactification. And so there are various mathematical effects, um, things called topology, uh, uh, topology theory and um, and and and, and uh, properties of geometry. Let's just call them, um, which guarantee you a certain spectrum of uh, massless or light particles. And so, so the what string theory does is it converts um, a, a problem that you had before, which is. What is the standard model? What are the interactions of the standard model? What are the particles? What are the masses of the particles and their spins and so on? You know, the data which 
in the standard model of the 1970s is sort of input. You have to say, that's, that's just the way the world is, and I'm not allowed to ask the question, why is that? Okay. In string theory, that's output. Uh, namely, that you, you have to choose, you, you have to figure out what the structure of this compactification, uh, this compact, tiny compact manifold is. And the geometry of that tiny compact manifold tells you what the, what the masses and structure of the particles of the standard model are. So a question you weren't even allowed to ask in the standard model gets turned on its head and turned into a question about geometry. And the question now becomes, why is the geometry of the extra dimensions in string theory precisely the thing that has the spectrum, the particles that we see? And so it's sort of an, it's a, both a problem and an opportunity. It's an opportunity to explain why, but it's a yeah. problem because you have to solve Einstein's equation on this six-dimensional space. And there are many, many such solutions of Einstein's equations. So the question now becomes, why are we living in the particular one that has the particular spectrum of light particles that we see in the world around us? And that's a problem which has been sitting with us since the mid-1980s, for which we still don't have a good answer. So in some sense, it's a visualization problem. So early last century, Einstein imagined things. And it was imaginable because we have a homo sapien brain <laughs> that, that lived in three dimensions forever. But now it is still an imagination problem, but we don't really have the intuition for that imagination. Is that, is that fair? Well, uh, to, to some extent, yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to visualize six-dimensional spaces. I mean, you, know, you can't draw them. <laughs> I, I do that for breakfast. The paper you would try to draw them on is only two-dimensional. <laughs> so we have enough time, you know, making architectural drawings of three-dimensional things using two-dimensional blueprints. <laughs> so, 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 you know, imagine trying to, you know, construct the engineering blueprints for a six-dimensional space needed to describe string theory. It's just, I mean, we're, we're a little bit at a loss. Um, and so what, what people end up trying to do is to say, well, let me describe the six-dimensional space making two-dimensional slices of it. Um, and you know, those we can draw. Uh, and so, so people tend to do that, that sort of thing. But that's not satisfactory from sort of holistic understanding of the thing, right? So, so, yeah. so I want to go forward in time. Um, so we have, as you, as you mentioned, uh, one, two A, two B, and a uh, couple of other uh, types of string theories that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, so we have sort of five different string theories going on. Right. Um, it was getting a little bit confusing, right? By mid nineties, uh, things were. That's right. That's yeah. right. So, so what had happened in the interim was well. So we were all very happy and patting ourselves on the back <laughs> that, uh, that we'd found a home for the standard model within gravity. Um, uh, at the expense of this extra-dimensional theory, but with the benefit that it seemed to solve some of the problems of Einstein's theory when it came to gravitational singularities. Um, but no explanation, you know, for wh why exactly this particular comp tiny manifold, um, uh, and, and which remains a problem to this day. Uh, but 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 the idea now, you know, has become that uh, in some sense everything is made of strings. 
the particles of the standard model are, are particular vibrational states of the string. The three forces, strong, electromagnetic, and weak, are different manifestations of the string. And gravity is another manifestation. So it's, it's like it is a unifying idea uh, that, that everything is somehow made of this one object. Um, but certain things still didn't click. And one of the things that we still didn't understand was there are certain kinds of singularities, in particular the singularities in the middle of black holes, that didn't seem to be resolvable using this idea of strings, you know, a bigger space of excitations coming out of the strings themselves. And there was another um, uh, sort of hint that was lying around, but a lot of people weren't paying enough attention to which was that there were, in the type two theories, um, there were um, additional um, Coulomb-like gauge bosons, uh, additional Maxwell-like um, gauge theories, uh, which had a funny property. They weren't Maxwell's theory because it didn't seem like there were any objects which were charged under those forces. So it was like you had a photon, but you had no electron. Uh, and and so, but you know, it's like, what what is this doing in the theory? Because remember when it was we were talking about the way the forces work, was that um, you had charged objects like the electron, and when you shake that charged object, you disturb the electromagnetic field around it, and the electromagnetic field sends off a stream of photons. And so, what is the use of having a photon with no charged particles to make it? <laughs> And so, um, so people weren't thinking about that because the type two theory didn't seem to have any room for the standard model, as I was saying earlier. And so, so people sort of said, ah, it's just some string theory that doesn't have the standard model and why should I care that it doesn't have charged particles? Um, but one person was paying attention um, and uh, that person was Joe Polchinski, uh, who um, was, uh, I guess, initially at University of Texas and then uh, Cal University of California, Santa Barbara. And so he, he realized that, um, that there were no, that there actually were um, objects that were charged. And they were a completely new thing that people hadn't realized were in string theory called D-brains. And, and they're, they're even weirder than string. String you think of as like one little vibrating loop of energy. The D brains come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes. So there are D particles, there are D strings, there are D membranes, there are every dimension of object you can imagine, all the way up to filling the entire nine dimensions of space. And uh, it turned out that the type one theory was actually just the theory in which there was a D brain around which filled all the nine dimensions of space. <laughs> um, and and so 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 that got people very excited because okay you have new toys to play with, uh, what can you do with them? Um, and one of the things that um, uh, people realized was that um, you know you can ask this question of if if strings the so strings as we were you know sort of visualizing them up until uh, Polchinski's observation. Uh, we were always doing calculations where we, again, expand in a small number. So the small number was the ratio of the Planck scale to the string scale. Yeah. 
Uh, and uh, but you could ask the question, you know, what happens if you, you know, you, we're just playing mathematical games. What happens if we take the ratio of those two energy scales and we make them, you know, equal to one another? Then there's no small parameter to expand in, and strings are strongly interact. You, you, you. It looks like you get back Einstein's the problem with quantizing Einstein's theory, namely, you know, what fixed the problem of Einstein's theory? It was all these stringy vibrations which started entering the dynamics before you got to the Planck energy. But if you now make the string energy scale and the Planck energy scale the same, then don't you get back into the same problem? And the thing that fixes that are Polchinski's D-brains. That if you crank the, the string energy up to the Planck energy and actually try to even make it even bigger than the uh, the Planck energy, so there are no stringy vibrations below the Planck scale, then what you find is that one of the deep brains that you thought was um, uh, a heavy excitation, as you're doing this dialing of the interaction strength to be, you know, big, the string, the, the deep brains get lighter and lighter. And so what happens is what you thought were the string excitations and what you thought were the deep brain excitations change places. And and so, um, so there's never a regime in string theory where the coupling is, um, the, the, the interaction strength is, you know, large. It can at most be order one. And when you sort of dial around in the strengths of interactions, um, different objects become light. Okay. And so it, it was not long after Polchinski discovered the D-brains that sort of um, Witten and um, um, to other physicists, Hull and Townsend, observed that there was kind of a unity of string theories, that in fact, these different string theories that were thought to be different, just, just different, you know, you had to make some choices at yeah. the beginning to say which string theory was relevant and then, you know, go with that one. Instead, no, they're different regimes of behavior or different phases of one bigger theory. And the one bigger theory has both strings and D brains and, and actually other kinds of brains. Um, so, but they were cataloged, the different kinds of brains and strings that can appear. And so there's sort of like this one object whose mathematics we still don't completely have under control. Uh, that uh, is, we still call it string theory. We sometimes also call it M theory because one of the corners you can push the theory into the thing that there's nothing that becomes light and then takes the place of the string. It's just the interactions remain at the Planck scale and the, the sort of extended objects in the theory are two dimensional and five dimensional. And so it's sometimes called M theory because M is for membrane. <laughs> and so the, the sort of the, 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 the simplest extended object is not a one dimensional string, but a two dimensional membrane. Um, that's what's called M theory. So it's not a one-dimensional string, but a two-dimensional membrane. So, um, so I'm there, going back to you know sort of the quads, um, the particles are sort of coming out because of the vibrations of the strings. Now we have a two-dimensional object. Right. How does that fit with uh, you know? So how do we explain? I mean. At least without knowing anything about it, I mean, you know, it sounded like it's feasible to have some sort of microscopic thing, you know, sort of vibrating to create particles. Yeah. Now we have a two-dimensional thing. How does it fit? So, um, 
So there are various ways of getting this. So so once once um, once there was realized that D-brains were important to the to the underlying structure, um, and you know these other brains of M theory and so on. So then the question becomes, okay, yeah, let's go back to this question of how the standard model of particle physics arises from string theory. And um, and you know one of the things that came actually the way the, the way this that Polchinski actually got at um, uh, these idea of D brains was by thinking about um, the dynamics um, that D brains support. You know what what is what how do strings interact with D brains? And and so so by thinking about how string theory strings interact with D brains, um, there's sort of some there's a way that a, a a graviton, for instance, can come in and latch onto a D brain and sort of split apart, and and the the ends. Uh, so what was a little closed loop of string becomes a string which has two endpoints. And it turns out that living on the D brain, some of the some of these what are called open strings or you know little segments, uh, you know which have ends, uh, the ends are are trapped on the are trapped on the D brain. And so there's sort of a dynamics that's intrinsic to the brains themselves. And you say, okay, what is that dynamics? It turns out to be an, yet another Maxwell type theory um, or strong interaction type theory. That, you know, in other words, a gauge theory with some underlying symmetry and some underlying matter degrees of freedom. And so another place, another home for uh, the standard model to come out of string theory is the dynamics of the brains themselves. In addition to the dynamics of the um, of the geometry of the extra six dimensions, you could have um, brains that are, say, filling our four dimensions of space and doing something in the extra dimensions. And the dynamics on the brains will fill the four dimensional space with you know, the particles that live on the brains. But since the brains are, are, are filling four dimensional space, the, you know, you'll have particles that can be anywhere in space because they live on the D brain. So, so more simplistically, Neil, can, can I think about the D-brains as sort of a stage on which the strings play? Yeah, the D-brains can live on the on the, on the strings can live on the D-brains. It's that's a that's a description of the brain dynamics again when the coupling when the when this small parameter is small enough. But you know, um, intrinsically, it's again one should think of it as that there there are Many places, many places where the standard model can have a home. It can be in the geometry of the extra dimensions. It can be in the intrinsic dynamics of the brains that live in space-time. Many possible. So it's sort of like an enlarged our toolkit for building the standard model as an ingredient of string theory. Mm. Yeah, um, it, it's beyond me, but I can I can get some sense of it. Um, yeah. And well, so. I think I think the way you should think about it is that is that string theory has a sort of a what I would call a, a protein character, not not protein in the sense of uh, <laughs> amino acids, but a protein in the sense of the Greek god Proteus, uh, who was uh, one of the sea gods, and uh, his superpower was being able to change his shape at will. Uh, and and so string theory is like that. There are all these different brains and strings and other exotic objects. But as you go from one regime of behavior into another, 
the brains become strings and the strings become brains and uh, particles become other things. And, and so, you know, it's hard to say what the fundamental degrees of freedom are of the theory, because which are sort of the lightest excitations and what are they made of changes as you go around to the different regimes of the theory. It's also clouded by uh, our ability to observe things. So yes. we observe some yeah. things and we attribute some information to it. Right. But but beyond that, um, yeah. there is so much going on that yeah, that well, it's, so, information may not be sufficient. Yeah. It, it's yes. So so we're going to have to develop new to in intuitions, and part in part because what this protean substructure is doing uh, is it's changing our notions of what space and time are on the most fundamental length scales. And, and the way, for instance, that can happen is that um, there's, as I was saying before, there are these sort of immutable properties of geometries called topology. Um, and, um, and, and so uh, the topological properties were thought to be things that you can't change by deforming the shape of the manifold, however you like. And what string theory shows is that you can actually smoothly deform one topology of manifold into another by making the geometry singular. What happens when you reach a singularity is these, these object, these other extra objects, the strings, the brains, etc., some of them become light. And when they become light, they can condense. It's a little bit like we were talking before about phases of matter like steam and water. Well, how do you get water out of steam? You condense the water molecules out of the air and you make you make this different phase called water. So it's a little bit like that, that um, when you, you know, twist up the shape of the extra dimensions and you make them singular, um, then um, different kinds of strings and brains that are wrapping the topology can become light and in fact massless and and, and then it costs you no energy to make lots of them. And what you find is that when you, when you make lots of them and you make a big condensed soup of this new light stuff, what you've actually done um, is to change the, these topological characteristics, which were thought to be immutable. Hmm. So, so, you know, when I said before that in the, you know, in the heterotic string, getting the standard model out was choosing the topology of the compactification, the tiny six extra dimensions. You might ask, well, don't I have to make that choice at the beginning? Am I back to the problem of the standard model of why the forces are the way they are? And the answer is no, it's a dynamical question. I can start with one compactification that has one spectrum of light particles, and I can smoothly deform it into the one that's the standard model one by a process of making certain strings and brains and extra things light condensing them and turning them into the standard model. So is it really dynamic? So so this goes back to a couple of things we want to talk about. One is the, the Big Bang. Um, so is it really dynamic over time that things can change completely? Well, it's, it's probably not dynamic anymore. It might have been dynamic at the Big Bang when you had a big hot soup of all of these things. But eventually you sort of settle out into something. Um, in the same way that you know, uh, if you know, in the Schrodinger's cat experiment, where um, you know 
you you create an electron that's simultaneously you know spinning this way and this way, and uh, and then you measure it and you decide what to do with your cat based on whether the spin came up up or down. Um, well, you know when you started off with the electron, it was in both it was in a in a in a superposition. It was in a state which was neither up nor down, but some mixture of the two. Okay. By the time you do the measurement and decide what to do with your cat, um, then um, the, the, those two outcomes of whether the spin was up or down, those sort of bifurcate into two different branches of the quantum mechanical wave function that subsequently never talk to each other. And so, so while the universe might have early on been a mixture of many of these different compactifications and topologies and whatnot, eventually it settles down and we presumably, you know, so there may be other branches of the wave function that are off doing different things and having different versions of the standard model. Uh, but we'll never talk to those regions of space because the experiment has already been done <laughs> and we settled into one branch of the wave function in which our standard model lives. And uh, the rest of them, for all practical purposes, are, are the, the uh, purview of metaphysics. <laughs> So this is so disappointing. I mean, are you are you are you telling me that there is a version where Donald Trump was not the president? It could well be, and would that we lived in that version. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not to be. Um, right. But um, but at least you know again, it becomes a a, a question of all these things which you thought were. Um, things that you have to decide a priori in order to set up the initial conditions of physics all of a sudden become dynamical questions in string theory. And uh, we have to be smart enough to understand uh, that dynamics well enough to understand uh, cosmology uh, and, and other phenomena like black holes. So, yeah, so I want to finish up with black holes. So the only sort of experimental laboratory that you have for string theory, maybe not the only one, but a good one, is a yep. black hole. Mm -hmm. And if, if you were to prove something there somehow, then things get interesting. Uh, I, I read something, I mean, that, um, so the, the, the background uh, microwave radiation, perhaps we can find some signs of strings. Is that possible, we, you know? Just before the inflation, you you know, you get some small. Yeah, well, so it's um, it's uh, it's one of these uh, um, uh, things that you want to explore, just in case it turns out <laughs> there, there are vestiges of string theory living in the pattern in the microwave background. But you know, don't bet the house on it because the likelihood of that, you know. Not have not happen, having happened is uh, equally larger, larger. So so you know it's always good to to look around and see you know is there some faint residue of uh, the early universe that that in the microwave background that would teach us something about string theory, and the answer is maybe. So let's go look for it. Uh, but I would not be surprised if the answer to that question was no. There isn't anything that we can reliably detect detect in the microwave background. The the one place where we're really forced to confront the shortcomings of general relativity is in black hole physics, yeah. because that's that's a place where Einstein's theory is just guaranteed to break down. You 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 know it's it's the formation of black hole is sort of an instability 
that um, when stars are first born and are shining brightly, uh, they shine brightly because they're burning thermonuclear fuel. They're fusing hydrogen into helium and creating energy that way, which makes the gap, the, the, all the atoms hot. Okay, and hot gases exert pressure, and the pressure um, uh, uh, is a counterbalance to the force of gravity trying to make everything collapse. And so stars are perfectly happy for billions of years burning their nuclear fuel, but eventually they run out of fuel. And if they're big enough when they run out of nuclear fuel, then uh, nothing can stop them from collapsing. And so a, a large fraction of the matter in the star goes, you know, rushing in um, to uh, towards towards, you know, eat, well, everything goes rushing in towards everything else, and nothing can stop it. And gravity gets stronger and stronger. The more the more compact things are, the closer they are. You know, the Newtonian force is inversely proportional to the distance. So the closer you make things, the stronger the gravitational forces. So everything just runs away. And the compression of things under the force of gravity becomes infinitely strong in a finite amount of time. And so, so, so that's a breakdown of Einstein's theory because nothing is truly, in, you know, it, look, either, the, either there's just, you know, a failure of physics and nothing fixes it, or there's something that takes over from Einstein's theory and fixes this problem of infinite compression of matter. And so, well, string theorists say, well, we, we kind of have um, a, a neat little toolkit for you to play with. <laughs> All these extended objects, which already fixed some of the singularity problems in Einstein's theory. There were certain, certain singularities that were already resolved by string dynamics. And so, um, so the question is, does string theory also have the capacity of fixing this runaway singularity in the core of black holes? And, um, and I think, you know, the, the, um, there, there's lots of evidence now accumulated since uh, this second string revolution in 95, when we understood that there were D brains and that all the string theories were part of a big uh, larger construct um, that, uh, you know, one of the things that came at that time were the first calculations, uh, calculation by Strominger and Vafa and a related earlier one by Ashok Sen in India um, that showed that you could uh, account for some of the properties of black holes within string theory, certain special black holes, I should say, uh, within string theory. And there was a plausible generalization of that to generic black holes where the same ingredients would would describe what was going on um, uh, when you formed a black hole. Yeah, this has been uh, fascinating, Emil. I don't think I understood most of it, but um, it's still uh, really interesting. Um, so, so we have this challenging problem in front of us, which is sort of the grand unification idea. Um, there are no alternatives, it appears to me. Correct me if I'm wrong. String theory is the only game in town from a unification perspective, isn't it? Yeah, well, so um, so some people like to explore other, other uh, avenues for quantizing gravity. I think most of them um, are more conservative than string theory in some respect that, you know, they basically are, are still trying to take Einstein's theory and apply the 
things that worked well for the other forces in the standard model and just say, well, maybe we just haven't been clever enough in our approach to using the standard tools uh, to quantize gravity. Um, and you know, one of one of these approaches is something called loop quantum gravity. Yeah. And uh, so loop quantum gravity, uh, one thing it does is sort of um, the loops are not strings. The loops are something else. Um, but the the one of the things it does is it sort of treats um, space time as something uh, that's discretized. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and the problem when you try to discretize space time um, is that remember I said earlier that the electron comes in two types, so it's sort of a left-handed part and a right-handed part, and the weak interactions only talk to the left-handed part. Um, and, um, and that's a problem when you try to discretize theories uh, of, of particle physics, that um, there's, there's a, a theorem that says you can't put left-handed interactions uh, in a discrete space-time. And so um, uh, it may be that there's a way of fixing this problem in the approach that people are pursuing in loop quantum gravity. Um, you know, any of these approaches are all speculative. Uh, they each have problems. Uh, the problems that different ones have are different problems. And each one can point fingers at the other and say, you know, your problem can't be solved and my problem can be solved. And um, and so, you know, I'm just pointing out one problem that loop quantum gravity has that string theory doesn't. Uh, but, you know, the loop quantum gravity people will point to string theory and they'll say, uh, oh, well, you know, you have the, this problem of choosing the extra dimensions or figuring out the dynamics. And by the way, none of you have solved the cosmological constant problem. <laughs> so, you know, there any, you know, there are any number of complaints one can have. Uh, we all have our prejudices as to why our theory is the most promising one. Um, and uh, I've described for you why I think string theory is the most promising one. Yeah, so just to conclude on this, so is my intuition right? There are two opposing theories. My intuition is that take quantum mechanics as a given and find out how gravity fits into it. It's a bit like, you know, if you're flying over Chicago and I look at all the buildings and mm -hmm. I see the geometry of Chicago, but I have no clue, concrete, steel, I was a civil engineer, so that's why I'm using theology. Uh, how do those materials, you know, sort of come together to make this um, cityscape? I will have no clue. I see the geometry, beautiful geometry of the city of Chicago. Um, it seems to me that quantum mechanics is really fundamental. Um, but when we take ourselves away to some distant point, we can see some interesting features of geometry. Mm -hmm. But that's really fundamental. And that is, that's my intuition. Well, what would you say to that? So it's interesting that you have that in intuition because um, so one thing that came out of this second superstring revolution and, and understanding um, the um, some of the microphysics of black holes um, 
was was precisely resolving this question of how are black holes consistent with quantum mechanics. And so, so, um, so, uh, the uh, one of the, the 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 key observations in that was something called the gauge gravity correspondence. And um, uh, and and so I don't know if you want to spend time going into that a little bit, or I, sure, I can sort yeah, of yeah, cut yeah. um, So so the idea is that is that if black holes are described described by uh, particular by these d brains. Uh, if some if some of the important ingredients of black holes are are these new objects that were discovered d brains, um, there and the d brains have their own intrinsic dynamics on them. They have this like standard model gauge theory dynamics on them. And so I can think of a black hole kind of as two different things. I can think of it as a gauge theory living on a d brain, or I can think about it as the geometry um, that uh, that uh, is um, is coming from gravity, and while the usual paradigm of physics is there's matter and matter sources geometry, this gauge gravity correspondence was more of an either or. That yeah. in taking a certain limit, you could either describe what's going on as gravity, or you could describe it as the gauge theory on the d brains without gravity. Yeah, and so. This leads to an idea that, and so as people sort of began to absorb this and play with it more and more, uh, and try to abstract the the lessons uh, uh, of of that second string super uh, super string revolution, um, they began to ask the question: Okay, if if I can, if if there's a an alternate description of the black hole and the things around it. Um, that's not based on gravity, but just the gauge theory living on d-brains. I've sort of replaced um, gravity with the quantum mechanics on these brains and the quantum mechanical theory that lives on these brains. So it's a, it's a description of things that behave like gravity without having gravity in the description. Yet, yes, there's this other description, which is gravity, but there's this, there's a, an alternative which doesn't have gravity in it. And so people have been playing that with that idea for now almost 25 years. And it's led in some surprising directions, and and one of them is is you know precisely what you're saying. Can we sort of just assemble some quantum mechanical degrees of freedom, lots of them, and have them interact in in sufficiently complicated ways that geometry sort of emerges from that soup? You know, it's just some soup where I put in quantum mechanics and some interactions, um, and stir, <laughs> um, and. And uh, and in the end of the day, sort of the long distance behavior looks like gravity. So gravity is then in it, what's called an emergent phenomenon from something more microscopic, which doesn't have gravity as an a priori feature. And uh, it, it very well could be. Um, yeah. Yeah, ignorance is very dangerous, but I like that a lot, you know. At least it sounds, sounds plausible to me. Excellent. Yeah. So I think we covered so many things that I had no clue about, but then it has been quite interesting. Yeah, well, I hope if people weren't enlightened, they were at least uh, entertained. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. What, what those crazy guys are thinking about <laughs> these days in theoretical physics. Excellent, thanks so much for spending so much time with me, Neil. This has been great. Uh, my pleasure.
Oops, I can't hear you now. I can't hear you now. Do I do I need to uh, restart my audio demon again? Let me let me do that again. Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Sorry. Yeah, so I send you, I published two of them. And I yes, send you I, saw, I saw your note on the, the link to the second one. Okay. So I published this in the next couple of days. I think this has been ex exceptionally good. Um, I learned a lot. Hopefully somebody else would have. Yeah, I, I, I tried to put at a level where I wasn't using lots of math and jargon and so on. So I, I hope... Um, I hope that came through. That people, you know, people that don't have the math and physics background will still right. be able to take something away from it. Right. Yeah. I mean, one goal is to, you know, sort of aspire, you know, get people aspired to physics. Yeah. Um, you know, get people in this field. I mean, there's so much to learn here. Um, so I don't know. I mean, hopefully we'll accomplish something. <laughs> yeah. But uh, thanks again for all your time. Yeah, it's it's been fun. It really has been fun. And thank you for reaching out again and setting this up. Thank you. Stay safe. And and by yeah, and by the way, if you ever find yourself in Chicago, uh, look me up. Yeah, we have to get a beer together. Yeah, so I will. So my daughter is going to uh, Case Western for her residency. Uh -huh. So I'm going to be traveling to Cleveland more often than the East Coast. So I'm pretty sure I'll come come up to Chicago. Okay. Yeah. Where, uh, where are you based? Uh, I'm in Connecticut. Ah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so I left Chicago a long time ago. And <laughs> now you're East Coast. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I would love to, I'll, I'll ping you, you know, if I come to Chicago and we can maybe get a beer together or something. And, uh, that would be great. That would be great. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye.